The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Father God, we are here by your invitation. And we come and we have reflected on your might and your majesty and your power and your grace and your mercy and your love. And God, we come from all sorts of contexts, all sorts of weeks, all sorts of years that we've walked through. And and some of us are in a really good place right now and some of us in a really tough place right now. But God, we come to encourage one another and to spur one another on. So Father God, as we open again your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us up. That Father God, I remember reading years ago that the preacher's job is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. God, if we need comfort this morning, that your word would bring comfort and encouragement and uplift. And God, if we become too comfortable, that you would stir us up to love and good works. Have your way in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we mentioned a few times, we spent, I think it was about four and a half years, covering the first 70 years of the, of the gospel message from the birth of Christ through up until just before the death of Paul. I hadn't really thought about it before, but when you look back over the timeline of biblical history back to the creation by the time we complete the book of Genesis, we would have covered one-third of human history. That's impressive, eh? So we will cover 2,000 years of human history in the book of Genesis. And so if you ever want to know where things fit in terms of human history, first 2,000 years, Genesis. The next 2,000 years, to Jesus Christ. And the next 2,000 years, to you and me. And here we are. And as we turn this morning to Genesis 4, the creation and the fall of man are behind us. Adam and Eve have been banished from the garden. And Adam, we're told, made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you and you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I've been trying to think back over all my years as a pastor. I don't think I've ever preached on this passage before. You kind of think Genesis 3 was about as bad as it gets. But as a father, I try to imagine as a father, as a parent, what the unfolding of this chapter was like for Adam and Eve and what it was like for God. And so I think right now is a really good time to go back to our basic principles that we learnt in Luke and Acts, and I keep coming back to them. We are not told everything in the story, but we are told everything that we need to know. It's easy to assume otherwise when we read the story that there are only four people on the planet at this point in time. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Which does raise a question because as if that was the case, because Cain says, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And if you take it, there's no, where we're told everything, that there's Cain, Abel, Adam and Eve, and Abel's dead, so is Cain expecting his mum or dad to come after him? Then we pick up, uh, beginning next week, Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant. Where did he get a wife? And so that becomes another one of the questions. Some have suggested that while... See, people come up with all sorts of theories and understandings about how this works. And for me, all of them have to come back and be tested by Scripture. Some have suggested that while God created Adam and Eve, he may have also created other human couples. However, the Bible is very clear that all the people on earth have descended from one couple and from one man. And that sin entered the human story through the actions of this one couple. When we were going through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was standing in the Areopagus in, in Athens and he says, the Lord, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He says, from one man he made all nations that they would inhabit the whole earth. So any other theory that says that there are other human beings somehow negates this verse of scripture. More significantly, we're told in Corinthians, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And if we have any theory that says that we weren't all descended from Adam, 
then we do away with the idea that we all die because of Adam's sin. But we also do away with the idea that we're all saved because of the sacrifice of Christ. So Cain's fear, was it a sibling or some other relative, would come and exact a vengeance. And that Cain's wife would likewise have been a sibling or other close relative. You know, in time when we come to the Mosaic law, we see that the the law forbids, as the law still forbids, uh, marriage and sexual relationship between siblings. And there may be other reasons, but one of the predominant reasons is because of the risk of birth defect through siblings giving, uh, conceiving and, and giving birth. But back at creation, the human DNA was still perfect. And so siblings bringing forth children would not have been a problem. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be told, in Genesis 5 we'll read, that there's written there, this is the account of Adam's line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth, and after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. So here we go again. We have another telling of the story from creation. And in this telling of it, Cain and Abel don't even get a mention. It says, when Adam had... Uh, mankind was created and when Adam had lived 130 years he had a son. No mention of anything else up to this point. But again, it's because we're not told everything. And the point of this story is not to tell us everything. The point of this particular story is to tell us about the lineage through Seth. One of the things we do know is that Adam was 130 by the time Seth was born. And we know that Adam was not created as a baby. He had been created as a man. And Eve was created as a mature woman. Therefore they would have been of an age to have children. Given that there was no TV, given that there was no contraception, it is a huge stretch of the imagination that in 130 years, given they had been commanded to be fruitful and multiply and increase in numbers and subdue the earth, given all of that, it is inconceivable that after 130 years, Adam and Eve have managed three sons. There's an article in the New York Times it says the book of Genesis mentions Adam's and Eve's children, Cain, Abel and Seth. But geneticists, by tracing the DNA patterns found in the people throughout the world, have identified lineages descended from 10 sons of a genetic Adam and 18 daughters of Eve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Coming up in a few weeks' time, we're going to get to the thing called the flood. And it all went back to eight people. So the genetic differential would have been nailed down to eight people, not necessarily ten sons and eighteen daughters of Eve. 
Another article suggests that if we assume that Adam and Eve gave birth to other sons and daughters, say one per year starting at 20 years of age, who had sons and daughters and so on, there could have been at least 10,000 people by the time Adam was 130 years old. I started to try to do the math. There is a calculator online and I got confused. My brain is not up to that this week. But there could have been 10,000 and, and even that's slightly wrong because they didn't have to wait until he was 20 years of age. They were created mature. So the population multiplication potential is there. So what Cain was worried about was one of those 10,000 relatives coming and exacting revenge. And of course, as Adam lived another 800 years after that, the numbers become incredible. However, it's interesting, it's like I'm a science geek and I'm a numbers geek, so, so I find that stuff kind of interesting. But I also find when most people come to this passage, that's what they look at. The only question becomes, so where did Seth find his wife? And that becomes sort of the, the focal point. But if it was really important about the numbers, we'd be told about the numbers. We can make reasonable assumptions as we have that there would be massive numbers and this is where it all happened. But the key question is not how many sons and daughters did Adam and Eve have. Not who would Cain, or who would hunt Cain down and kill him or who would Cain take as a wife. What are we told? We're told that Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So far, so good. Then we're told of the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord and Abel brought an offering, fat portions, some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering. We're not actually told why they brought offerings. We're also not told when in the course of time these things were brought. Maybe there was just a stirring within them that they knew that they needed to bring offerings. Maybe God had issued some kind of command that there would be offerings brought. And I, I think that's most likely. I, I kind of imagine, again, there's no TV, so it's, the sun's going down, and so Adam and Eve start a little campfire, and they sit around the campfire telling their family, Stories. That's what parents do, tell the kids bedtime stories. But you can't go to the shelf and grab off a Grimm's or a whatever other kid's story they might be, Hungry Little Caterpillar or anything else. It didn't exist. So all the stories about what, would you, about what happened in the garden. And I can imagine Adam and Eve sharing about what it was like to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. And I can imagine Adam talking about what it was like to have all the animals come to him so he could name them. And I imagine things when it got a bit quiet as they admitted what had happened at that tree. When they talked about why the snake can't walk anymore. And I imagine they talked about the moment how in spite of the fact that they'd made these clothes of leaves for themselves that God took an animal. And I imagine their young imaginations were captured particularly the boys, because that's how boys are wired, as God slaughters this animal, its blood poured out on the ground as he makes garments of skin for them. 
remembering, of course, that their kids are probably clothed in garments of skin, and it's like, that's why we kill animals. And so I imagine that somewhere in that mix, whether it's just an understanding, whether some of these gods actually said they understand that there is a value in bringing a sacrificial offering to God. We are told that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. I think the language is chosen very carefully. He just brought some of the fruits. It's not surprising because he worked the fruit. He worked the vegetables. And so he brought some of them. But we're very carefully told that Abel also brought an offering. He worked with the animals. But it says he brought fat portions of some of the firstborn. In other words, he brought the best part of the offering from some of the most prized of his flock. It's like Cain had this, I've got to bring something. And Adam understood what he had to bring. We're not told for sure, but it would seem that Cain should have known that this was not acceptable, that this would not be an acceptable offering. We're told in Hebrews, back over in the New Testament, we're told that by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. We're not told how God spoke well of his offering. We're not told how Cain would have known. But we are told that Abel, by faith, brought a better offering. We're told that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, which suggests that in some way God had communicated quite clearly. You know, because I've heard this passage preached in the past where it's kind of like God was being really picky. He just decided he liked that offering and he didn't like that one. It's like, no, no, God had spoken. So Abel was responding in faith. If only the story could have stopped there. We're told that the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. How much easier to go, God, I, I know I should have done better. How much easier to back down at that point. And the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? However God's favour was communicated, both Cain and Abel were left in no doubt. And the look on Cain's face left no one else in any doubt. Cain was not happy. He could have easily have acknowledged his failure. He could have taken responsibility for his actions. But instead he got angry. And so again, God brings correction and warning. And he offers Cain again an opportunity to change the course of his conversation and of his life. God says to him, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do the right thing, Cain, because if you don't, if you keep going down this path, this thing is going to take over your life. 
We read last week from James that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That was the nature of sin in Genesis 3. That was the nature of sin in Genesis 4. And that is still the nature of sin in 2022. And right now, sin's grip on Cain is growing. Ignoring God's warning, Cain invites Abel to go for a walk through the fields. You know, a walk through the fields, I'm told if you're angry with your wife, go for a drive. Why? Because you can't look at each other while you're driving. You're looking in the same direction, and that helps calm things down. So to go for a walk together, looking together in the same direction is helpful. It's less confrontational than looking at each other. And so this could have been a, a walk of apology and reconciliation and restoration of relationship, but instead Cain's only plan was to kill his brother. And things keep getting worse. And so gone again, God gives Cain an opportunity to turn around and own up. Even when Cain is angry, even murderous, even now, God calls and still goes looking for Cain. God doesn't stop looking and reaching out to those who reject him. So the Lord says to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? With that echo of uh, Adam, as God walks through the cool of the, gar- the evening, in the garden in the cool of the evening, he called out, Adam, where are you? Well, now he says to Cain, So where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's easy to miss that tone if you're a parent and you remember what kids respond like. You know, not my fault. Am I going to keep track of him and his things? God doesn't come with an accusing tone. He comes with a gracious tone. He comes offering opportunity to turn back, to make things right. But he knows full well what has happened. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And yet God exercises grace, giving invitation and opportunity for confession. Again, even at this moment, Cain could have turned and said, God, I got angry and I hit him. And he's like, he's become the sacrifice that I didn't bring. His blood has been poured out on the ground. But Cain's response is flippant. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I meant to keep track of him? And the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries from the ground. Without a doubt, there will continue to be consequences. His parents were banished from the garden. And now Cain is to be driven far far away from the garden. He is to be a wanderer. But even now we discover that no matter how far away he is driven, he is never away completely from God's love, grace and mercy. For God continues to protect him. 
Even though Cain continues to be unrepentant, even though his greatest concern is still for himself. You know, that my burden is too great for me. And I can imagine God could have gone, you do know your brother's lying dead out there in the fields. And Cain's going, this punishment's too hard. But God offers hope. Cain's life will not be taken from him. He will continue to have opportunity to turn. But the flip side is, of course, he will continue to live through his very, very long life with memory of what he did to his brother. For his brother, however, Abel, life in this world was short. But he is already at home. Abel was the first to enter heaven. The first to return to the very presence of God. See, faith is not about believing in God. It's not about believing that God exists. Cain believed in God. Cain knew God existed. Cain had this ongoing conversation with God. And God loved Cain. And God did everything possible to give Cain every opportunity to respond, to change the direction that his life was headed. However, faith which saves, faith which changes lives and eternities, such faith is about humble obedience that acknowledges and honours God as the creator of all things, as the giver and author of life. We are not saved by our knowledge of God. We are saved when we acknowledge God, when we acknowledge who he is and his rightful place in our lives. The longer we resist and reject him, his calling, his attempts to draw us to him, the greater the distance we place between us and him. And we see that time and again as we continue through the the, the biblical story. But God still loves us. He still gives time and opportunity for a change of heart. We're told by Jesus that grace is given to those who least deserve it. And in Matthew 5.45 he says that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I don't imagine there's anyone here this morning who's far from God. But I can pretty much guarantee there are people here this morning who have family members who are far from God. And know no matter how far they have gone, no matter how lost they seem, they are not outside of God's love and his reach and his grace and his mercy. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, God said, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Now just visualise the sin crouching at the door. But while sin crouches at the door, the Saviour stands at the door and says the doorway is open. Sin crouches longing to have you, but the Saviour stands at the door longing to fellowship with you. May we always present a gospel of a God who loves us 
and no matter how far we go, will always keep striving with us as God struggled and wrestled with Cain, giving him opportunity after opportunity to turn. May a gospel be a gospel that is welcoming and inviting and loving and gracious as our Father is. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.